for some reason, I feel really nervous because you're actually a professional history teacher. <laughs> I feel like I need oh, to really? be on that. Yeah. <laughs> the History in Polium and Pow's podcast in association with the History Corner dot org podcasts articles reviews greetings one must not get one's knickers in a twist Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. Today I'm joined by Patrick, a Belfast native who resides in Kent. He has a job I'm very envious of. Paddy is a history teacher and I'm so honoured that a professional historian wanted to join me on the podcast today. Paddy has also written an article on thehistorycorner.org on today's subject, so 100% go and check that out too. Today's topic has all things I love, Victorians, the macabre, and the name Jon Snow. So welcome, Paddy, and thanks for being here. It is my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I'm super nervous because you're a history teacher. (laughs) Well, I think if you pretend that it's like a Friday afternoon and you're 15 and you just couldn't be bothered, then this is great. So you could just sit there and not really have to do anything, you know? And you can't even see me to see if I'm playing up at the back of the class either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's hope that let's hope that my you know marginal talent in teaching uh, translates well into podcast. Because if not, I mean, this will be first and last episode. So you know, fingers crossed. Sorry. No, I'm 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 super excited um, to have you here. Like, so before we before we crack on. Do you kind of want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? No pressure. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, so let me see. Well, I'm obviously a big fan of history. I am a big fan of teaching. And, well, I'm from Belfast, which you could possibly tell from the accent, but I, I haven't lived there in about 15 or 16 years, so it's mellowed a little bit. And I think growing up surrounded by sort of uh, history sort of happening around you, and, you know, I was listening to your podcast episode on the restoration period and William of Orange and the fact that like he celebrated every year and that weirdly became a sort of big part of uh, my suburbs growing up and stuff. I think that just nurtured an interest in history. So, yeah, as you said, I'm very lucky to uh, work in work in my passion, I guess. Yeah. So so that's my background. Yeah. Paddy from Belfast, history teacher. Happy to be here. I love it. That's amazing. So we're going to crack on. So this topic I know very little about, apart from reading your article on thehistorycorner.org. Um, I keep plugging them today. They better plug me back. <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's hope. Um, so yeah, I'm just gonna gonna crack on. So, um, why cholera and why Jon Snow? Well. Cholera was and is a terrifying disease, so it could kill a healthy person in four hours, and it attacked the world in the 1800s. We're talking like first, I suppose, the middle 50 years of the 1800s and several pandemics, and a doctor called John Snow, now admittedly a very boring John Snow, figured out how to stop the disease in such a seemingly simple way, yet 
he was ignored. Thousands upon thousands of lives were lost. And then within this story of him figuring out how to stop cholera, we've got a highly developed society of Britain and the Industrial Revolution, like changing the face of the earth. But it's medical knowledge, certainly at the beginning of the Victorian era, hadn't developed in centuries. It was essentially medieval. I mean, essentially Roman with some, you know, add-ons from the Islamic civilization. And then in between of, you know, medicine trying desperately to catch up with the rest of society, we've got some absolutely mad stories too, which I hope you'll enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what I love about the Victorian age. It was kind of... um sort of nothing happened for a long period of time well obviously stuff did happen but then you've got like bam you've got the industrial revolution and 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 paving the way for science religion was changing all that kind of stuff so yeah i mean that's massively why i i love this this period in time so can you tell me more about cholera so what were the symptoms and kind of when did it first appear yeah i mean cholera so it started well, i'll talk you through the disease first so if you got cholera you would have a sudden and massive increase in diarrhea um and you know i think it could be leader, leaders upon leaders approximately 10 liters of of diarrhea you could be looking at in 24 hours um uncontrollable vomiting uh, your legs start to fully cramp and then now you've got full dehydration sets in so you've got extreme pain uh, all fingers and toes turn completely cold turn blue they sometimes would shrink to a third of their size uh, you would experience a torturing thirst and then weirdly because of this intense dehydration if you cut a cholera victim their blood wouldn't actually flow out of their veins so it was like a deep dark color and it looked like jelly so you could actually just see this blood you know sort of trudging along in somebody's vein or arteries and and then i suppose you've got a clue as to how the disease was finally i suppose guess uh prevented but also what made it such and makes it because it's still around the world today in developing countries um the patients or the victims would excrete what looked like rice water so this kind of cloudy liquid which had no taste it had no smell and that was what was carrying all of the cholera bacteria so um yeah essentially what you're looking at is you could wake up in the morning healthy and you could be dead by tea time so there was quite a low uh, a low survival rate for the disease as well i mean that's terrifying and sounds really grim as well. I mean, we talk about um, pandemics and plague quite a lot on this podcast. Um, I mean, it's very relevant, isn't it, at the moment? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, sounds grim. I mean, yeah, uh, the thing is as well, it had actually been in... So it started in India in the Ganges River Delta. And there's some sources referring to it from the late 1500s. And the, so the disease was there, but I think in quite closed off societies. So I don't think it ever really spread that much. And of course, in, in rural societies, so as we'll go on to look at later, when it hit in places with bad hygiene and people living in crap conditions, so we're looking at, you know, industrial revolution cities, then there was, you know, huge uncontrollable outbreaks. But so it had been around India for quite some time. And now by the 1800s, 
let's see, 1817 was uh, the first year that it was noted by the British in India. So as the British went further into India, and as the world was becoming more interconnected, uh, it hit, uh, I think it was a town called Jasore. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Bengal. <laughs> and this is when British soldiers first experienced it. And uh, there was a death toll, uh, which the uh, British army noted in November 1817. There was a death toll of 9,000 men in five days. And there's these sources telling us that the British army, as they were uh, patrolling along of their horses, literally fell off their horses. And the roads were, you know, within an hour, covered with the sick and the dying. So once these sources come back to Britain, really nobody, nobody seemed to be that worried. And I guess, like you said earlier, when we think about COVID, if we think about this time last year, February 2020, like there was more and more and more reports but i suppose people just thought it might be another bird flu or a swine flu so so it's really interesting you say that because um i work on the front line and we knew that this pandemic was coming we'd heard it all over the news but for some reason being i don't know british we kind of think we're immune to these things um mm. uh and then it's it's coming nearer and nearer and i was due to go to Japan, I know that sounds really um, first world issues, but I was due to go to Japan and I was, I was determined that I was still going. I was like, no, I'm going, I'm going like, I don't like what it's fine. Like, it's absolutely fine. We've had outbreaks of, of bird flu and that before, and it's sort of amounted to nothing. Um, But yeah, as you said, it got closer and closer and closer. And another point I kind of wanted to make was it was... Um, it's interesting that it had been around in India for a long time, seen as a, a developing country and seen um, to be over um, overruled by the British. It seems, again, that the British were um, only concerned when it came back and affected them, like it came nearer mm-hmm. to Europe and to Britain. So, yeah, there were just two points I wanted to make. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're totally right that there was almost that... that... I suppose the island mentality that that we, I mean we saw you know in and around this time last year didn't we and that was very much around for the um in this period it was actually pre-Victorian I think it was William the fourth was was on the throne mm. anyhow so we would think that you know today if a, a an infectious disease breaks out in Asia then it comes here relatively relatively quickly through our interconnected worlds but. From 1817, it turned, it developed into a pandemic by 1822, and it was largely the Middle East and Far East that were affected, and South Africa. So it got as far west as Syria, oddly South Africa, and then it stretched right the way east through China to Japan, and then it stopped, and nobody knew why. And people Mm. thought, right, well, that's the end of it. So in November 1822, all cases stopped. And it was, you know, there would be the odd article in British newspapers about it, but it was more, almost like a like a human interest story. Like there wasn't seen to be any threat whatsoever. And then five years later, uh, it hits America. So it comes back again. It, it, start, it started in India. It hit North Africa. It hit Cuba, the Philippines. And then it hit New York in 1827. And I think this is when panic started to spread a little bit, mostly in Britain among the medical community. And there was an Irish family called the Fitzgeralds in New York. And the father worked on the docks. 
and he came home with violent stomach pains uh, one day and by the time a doctor arrived the following morning he had recovered but but his wife and his children were all dead and this then started off wow. huge uh, yeah i mean it really when you think about it in that short time um so then all major american cities were hit by cholera i mean in new orleans five thousand people died and i mean new orleans wasn't uh you know it wasn't immune to, to outbreaks of infectious disease i think because of a lot of the climate but what we then see in the philippines is what was going to be seen around the world and that uh the chinese and the europeans were accused of magic by a crowd and, uh, right <laughs> numbers yeah <laughs> numbers of them were murdered when when an english ship arrived at the port and what we then uh, see is this sort of pattern from 1827 as this pandemic started to spread really, really slowly across the world. And by 1830, it had arrived into Russia. Uh, now, when it arrived in Russia, that's when morning bells started to ring a little bit. But of course, like Russia is absolutely massive, but it hit St. Petersburg in the West. It was brought by boatsmen from the countryside and then it hit Moscow. Now, this is where the, um, like Russian society at this time is just absolutely fascinating. So the Tsar was Nicholas I and he, you know, heard about the pandemic and actually went to Moscow and incredibly bravely visited all of the cholera victims in hospital and, you know, heard their stories, talked to their families, which for a man who was seen as, I mean, he was an emperor, part like semi-god-like possibly. That's really modern, isn't it? So you, there was in the 80s, there was the big deal about Diana going to see the AIDS victims and how it was revolutionary. But obviously this uh, Tsar Nicholas was doing it way before then. Yeah. And, and I kind of I know the Tsars are often saying I think we see the Tsars through the last, you know, Nicholas II's family. But um, this guy, Tsar Nicholas, seems seems wonderful. And here's here's the brilliant bit. So people in Moscow started rioting. And uh, they were beginning to attack doctors or were beginning to invade hospitals and try to get people out. And Tsar Nicholas stormed out of a hospital, <laughs> told off the crowd, told them to stop behaving like, and I quote, you are Polish or French, unquote. And um, the crowd all instantly stopped rioting. And he said, go home, get out of here. And, uh, That's brilliant. And it's like your mum telling you off. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get back inside yeah. now. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then let me see. So it's a it's it's come on west and west and west, and then it hit um, Germany and it hit Hamburg, and Hamburg was a city which had huge trade with uh, Sunderland, with Hull, with London, all those sort of big ports on the east of the UK and you know the medical the medical community were really starting to panic now of course you know the government really didn't see that there was much of a problem william the fourth actually he did in fairness to him and he had addressed parliament i think it was in 1827 saying perhaps we should be looking into this and of course you know mps didn't didn't want anything to do with it but in <laughs> berlin not much has changed has uh, it really <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> So in Berlin, then, you had doctors studying it uh, close up. And, of course, there was this almost European snobbery of, well, of course, you know, American doctors have looked at it, Asian doctors have looked at it, but let's let European doctors look at it now. And there's one story of a Dr. Kalov, 
who tried to prove that cholera wasn't contagious and contracted the disease and, and died the next day. Oh. So there was, there was huge panic. And so, as I said, yes, I got to Hamburg, which is in the northern tip of Germany. And they shut down their port under instructions from the mayor, said no ships can leave. And then, of course, a couple of British ships said, well, we're British. I think you'll find we can leave. So they left. <laughs> God, assholes, aren't we? Like, absolute assholes. <laughs> so, yeah, they came back and within a week it was in, it was in Sunderland. And this was at the start of 1831. And then what we saw in Russia, what we saw in Germany, there were riots. Uh, and we saw riots in Liverpool and Sunderland and London um, and largely against doctors, actually. So a huge amount of this rage was towards the people who were trying to fight the disease. So why was there a distrust in doctors? Ah, well, this is right. It's totally bizarre. So as I said earlier, the the medical understanding at the time really hadn't progressed in centuries. And doctors really didn't know how to treat disease. They didn't know what disease was. So doctors would largely offer you brandy or opium. And, you know, they could they could treat pain, but only in the sort of opiates or alcohol kind of I mean, that sounds quite good to me. It, it does actually sound quite lovely, yeah, yeah. But I suppose <laughs> if you've got uh, if you've got uncontrollable diarrhea, that brandy's coming straight out. You mm, know, so. Yes, true. Nice vision there. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I try to bring the podcast alive. Uh, it's <laughs> all right. I'm I am I'm the smut of the history world. It's fine. You can say what you like. <laughs> um, I'm I'm I tried to be professional at first, but then I thought, hey, I'll do me. So here we are. Here we are talking about diarrhea and. Brandy and drugs. Continue, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think we, we, we knew we would end up here anyway. Mm, 100%. Um, so, was <laughs> so a doctor could, you know, they would even bleed people at this stage. You know, I think, you know, leeches at this stage, and I think in Blackadder they, they, they parody this as well, that leeches were the, you know, medical phenomenon of the time. Mm. And, you know, lots of people, particularly in the countryside, you know, country gentlemen and ladies would go to the doctor for their annual bleeding and say, you know, just keep going. If even if I pass out, keep going. You're you're getting rid of the getting rid of the bad air. And so essentially to qualify to be a doctor, you could do a university degree in which you had to study Latin and Greek so that you could read Latin and Greek texts. And so again we're seeing there, they're always studying I mean when was Galen? He was the, the famous Roman doctor. Mm, it's the f- the four humours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they study the four humours. Um, or the Archbishop of Canterbury could give you a license or you could just start, you could just be a doctor and, and hope for the best. Um, so, there, so there's your first thing. So doctors were seen as people who, you know, profiting off the sick. The second thing is that this, you know, I've said before, and, you know, you're obviously a huge expert in the Victorian age. So we know how much this was an era of great change. So there was a huge amount of change within uh, anatomy. So many doctors and surgeons needed dead bodies to operate on. And traditionally, you would get them from uh, the gibbet, really. So, you know, someone's committed a, a crime, they're killed, and then you bid on the body, essentially. But 
supply could not keep up with demand and doctors really needed bodies to to uh, pick apart so doctors would be sneaky and sometimes if they were operating on someone who died or they were treating someone who died they would take a certain part of their body and then you know put the body into a coffin and, and, and give it back to the family and there's a story of a man in Liverpool uh, a grandfather who's oh, it's really sad his four-year-old grandson passed away of, of cholera and he asked for the body and the hospital were being quite funny about it so obviously he said just give me my grandson's body or what I want to bury him and he was given a closed coffin and immediately his suspicions were aroused he opened it up and his grandson's head had been taken off and replaced with a brick and the doctor had just taken the head to study it and obviously for some religious yeah i know how messed up is that and even at the time i know sometimes we can look back at the past and think god people were crazy back then but even at this was on you know scarcely believable so uh the, uh, of course, people being religious, of course, at the time, there was this belief, and you can understand how people came to this conclusion, you needed, if you, you needed to die with your full body to mm. get into heaven. Um, and of course, then people started to turn on doctors quite a lot. And now, I believe, and I'm taking this from a Jack the Ripper tour I did about 10 years ago in, uh, <laughs> in the East End, um, I think this is where the shift grave or the term graveyard shift comes from because police in east london and perhaps in other places around europe and around the world as well had to actually defend cemeteries yeah uh, so yeah so this was happening all over the the country so famously in scotland you've got burke and hare um Mm -hmm. that were that were digging up um bodies they were they were native irishmen i believe um yeah yeah um so they were digging up bodies and if you go into any uh graveyard that's around the victorian time so highgate cemetery in london is is quite a famous one um you'll see metal sort of bars and chains over the top like of people's graves and it was to stop their bodies being um removed um there were coffins that were um like banded in like metal so people couldn't open them yeah it was a real big problem back in the victorian times wow oh, that's so interesting i never i never um i never realized that you, you sort of see these victorian graves and they're wonderfully ornate and it never occurred to me that they were protective wow Mm, yeah and why people had all these big vaults and stuff with lots of doors and locks and stuff on them is so people couldn't sort of take your body away and do well do what they will with it i guess um although i mean i said this on the sorry well yeah i was gonna say that it's so odd that um it was doctors who were buying all the bodies Mm. that again you could sort of see why there was a distrust in doctors if they're purchasing you know, your great aunt who's just died and some doctor buys her to cut her apart. Ugh, horrendous. Yeah, although saying that, I said this on the last episode as well, I've donated my body to, obviously not now because I'm using it, but um, I've donated my body to uh, medical science when I die. So it, it's going it's going to Cambridge University and I will be um, chopped up for research i guess i mean i'm not sure by the time i die that anyone would want my remains but hey ho 
let's um not my problem <laughs> at the end of the day um but yeah yeah interesting about the um about the uh the graveyard shift and all that yeah well, can I just, um, I mean, we've both discussed before that we're both ramblers and, you know, I'd be shocked if this podcast only stayed with John Snow and cholera. So can I ask, um, so Cambridge, did you approach Cambridge? I mean, was it luck of the draw or did you decide you want to send your body to Oxford? So Cambridge is relatively local to me. I know it quite well. And I knew that they um, they do a lot of stuff with medical science. I knew that the... Um, the university were kind of a lead in medical science so um it it was it was sort of 50 50 so i i mean i just went online i started googling and researching and and um not quite looking up reviews (laughs) because that would be weird but um just sort of taking my pick and i thought you know what if i'm gonna i mean who knows where i'll end up in god knows how long but um if I'm still in the localish Hertfordshire area, actually, it's not that far to take my body <laughs> if they need it. So that was that was one of the main reasons why I went for that. Um, yeah, I think my family were a bit sort of creeped out at first, but um, hey, it's my body, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's such a that's such like an admirable thing to do, I think, too, because we all profit off medical knowledge mm. no profits are way. We, you know what i mean we, we all benefit from it and i suppose you agree you're literally giving back the best thing possible yeah well hopefully i'm not sure what state it will be in hopefully yes no <laughs> well, i've stopped smoking i don't drink that much anymore so it should be okay um yeah yeah, yeah. Um, let me see. Uh, where, oh yes, medical uh, doctors uh, studying bodies. So, what I so I knew about Burke and was it Burke and Hare? The yeah. Two? Yeah. I didn't realize that uh, they were Irish, but um, there we go. It led to the the verb burking, which is to lure people to their deaths and yeah. sell their bodies to medical science. Mm-hmm. Absolutely mad. Um, and then I think they started. I think they. St- uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but did they start a, a craze? Because I know that um, two burkers, uh, as they were called, two people who uh, killed people and sold their bodies, were hung in London since the same year the cholera arrived in front of a crowd of three thirty thousand celebrating people. I mean, I don't know if it was them particularly that started the craze. They were the most famous, I guess, of the... Mm. Um, of the sort of the grave robbers um now mm. i don't know if that was because there was an um an anglo-irish feud that's been going on forever and they were kind of made they were made examples of um because we know that the the british like to have control <laughs> over um mm-hmm. over people and, and 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 who best to make an example of than a foreigner i guess so um <laughs> Yeah. Anyone would think I was never born in Britain. I'm very anti the establishment, <laughs> but um hey ho, I will speak the I will speak my mind. But um Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, uh, yeah, it was I think it, there was money and it was easy to make some money mm. and mm. there were a lot of shady characters around and mm. it wasn't so in the Victorian times we know it was kind of hard if you were kind of born into 
um, a lower class, I mean, I hate that term, but a lower class family, um, the idea of, of moving up the ranks was near on impossible. So you did what you had to do to get money and yeah. feed your family and feed yourself. And I mean, there were people out there that were violent and, and just did it for the banter, I guess. But um, mm. yeah, where there's money, there's um, supply and demand and all that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's depressingly true. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess the, uh, <laughs> once we've got on from the weirdest supply and demand example, and uh, actually perhaps second weirdest of something I'll get on to talk about later on. But I suppose lastly, a weird thing about cholera was that bodies twitched for quite a long time after people died. And um, perhaps it's something to do with dehydration. Mm. So there was rumours then that doctors were burying people alive so all of this distrust in doctors in the early 1800s then led to people to create this bizarre conclusion that people were actually being buried alive so there's some reports of people sitting up bolt right in coffins a lot of cholera victims eyes would start to move once once they were dead you know for i would say quite a long time after the mm. death but perhaps you know an hour or two but i think enough that uh, people's suspicions were aroused. So that's a really long-winded way to say why there was such huge levels of distrust in, in doctors at this time. I mean, just on the, the bodies twitching, um, I mean, you see it quite a lot in, in, in movies and stuff. There's obviously a lot of gases and stuff inside your body and, and, and they will make your body move um, like impulsively, I guess. Um, mm. But I also wonder if this, so this body twitching, if this was kind of like the rise of like the the notion of zombies and the undead, um, because I know in again in Victorian graveyards um, that I weirdly spend a lot of time in, um, there was um, so people used to be terrified about being buried alive, so they'd have a bell that was attached to their leg. Uh, so they were buried six foot under. So if their leg moved, the bell would ring and they would know to dig the body up. And it, people were buried alive. Um, maybe not in this circumstance, but um, there are some illnesses that, that you can appear dead and not actually be dead. So yeah, if you... I mean, the bells are long gone now, but um, if you go into a Victorian graves, graveyard, you can sometimes see on the side of... Um, tombstones uh, like a little divot like a uh, where a bell would have sat um, wow. yeah amazing and I'm sure in Canterbury where you are there must be loads um, down your way yeah that's so interesting I you know I will conduct some research I will go to my local cemetery and check I was going to uh, say take the, take the kids there on a, on a field trip <laughs> Come on, kids! We're off to a graveyard. Let's go. I meant the school kids, not your, not your two little twins. <laughs> yeah, terrify yeah, them yeah. before they're one. Exactly. Give them nightmares early. Yeah. 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 Give something to be scared of. Get it out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> um. Indeed, yeah. So, how did? So you said this pandemic ran for a little while. So how did the first pandemic end? Well, I think as nobody knows, because this was and uh, 
I guess because this uh, was on a bit of a spoiler alert, a waterborne disease. Uh, I think it it's 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 difficult to say. I think you could this disease could be prevented and can be prevented very easily. So nobody's really sure. So this so the first pandemic was in the early 1820s, suddenly stopped. The second pandemic, which hit Britain in 1831, stopped the next year. And people thought that was it then. People thought that this this was the end of cholera. So there was 32,000 deaths uh, within a one year period. So, but, and then uh, as soon as it stopped, then of course, yeah, pe- people moved on with their lives and thought, goodness, wasn't that awful. And, you know, of course there was huge amounts of fear about cholera because I think largely, I mean, there was, you know, so many causes of deaths at this time, you know, with so many diseases that just aren't around anymore. And I think people were terrified of cholera because it was, well, A, it could kill you so quickly, but B, it was seen as like a foreign disease, like a scary disease that wasn't native to Britain. And there was that sort of inherent fear of... I told you, the the British and foreigners, they hate it, don't they? (laughs) Just blame the foreigners all the time. Um, Yeah, but it's interesting, though, because you've got um, people called it either the Indian cholera or the Asiatic cholera. It's only in, you know, more, I suppose, late 20th century mm. that we just call it cholera. So and... can I digress here again? I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you, mm. but I think it's yeah, really dangerous when we start naming variants after places. So obviously this, you've got the Spanish flu, which sort of took mm. a massive... Um, uh, sort of impact on, on, on Spain, but actually it probably didn't come from Spain. It actually probably came from America, more likely. Um, you've mm. got, with COVID, you've got like the Kent variant, the South Africa variant. I just think it's really dodgy when we name sort of um, variants after places because I just worry that everyone will sort of, every, everyone will all of a sudden blame all of you lot in Kent for that um <laughs> for that variant yeah, I mean, it's all your fault um yeah it's just dodgy right. isn't it dodgy yeah and actually the world health organization banned this in 2015 they said nobody's allowed to call a disease after an area and of course then you know you had trump calling it you know the chinese var- called covid the chinese mm. virus and, and whatnot then you can see why they did that because you're right for the the spanish flu on which i'm currently writing an article for uh, the history oh they've got so many plugs this this episode yeah, i know i know haven't they just that's it they're not getting any more ever again no joking <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the Spanish flu, and I'll not tell you too much because, uh, you know, want to get those clicks for the hit, the historycorner.org. Absolutely. Um, it was started in a Kansas pig farm. So it was a swine flu from Kansas, but the Spanish uh, press were the first to report it. So it just uh, it got the name as, as the Spanish flu. So, but yeah, you're totally right. It just doesn't sit right when a disease is named after a place. Um, but yeah, there we go. So anyway, yeah. Yes, we're in 1832 and cholera has just stopped. That's good. So now we've discussed uh, cholera and doctors. Can you tell me more about Jon Snow? Yes. Now, Jon Snow was... Well, he's, I'm sure many of your listeners will know the famous story about Jon Snow. I remember learning it at school when I did GCSE history. And I taught it at school, essentially, this anecdote that 
cholera broke out in Soho in London and <clears throat> John Snow got a map, saw that all of the deaths were near a water pump. He took the handle off a water pump and cholera stopped. And that overly simplistic way of looking at it, like it is true, but it's so it's like a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the story. Mm. So that's where John Snow I'm sure that, that that's the knowledge that many people have. of. Yeah, of and that's the only knowledge that I had, but I didn't actually know his name. I knew that there was a gent that yeah. t- took took the, the pump off the, or put the, took the handle off the water pump in, in London, and, and that was it. Like, the masses were saved. Hurrah! <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I didn't know his name. I didn't know his name. Yeah. I mean, he was, oh, you know, I'd love to sit here and tell you that he was the most interesting person. He was really, really dull. Mm. I think he is kind of, I think he's the sort of person that we think of when we think of a Victorian, you know, like a kind of just, you know, a bit of a square person, you know, didn't didn't really drink, didn't never went to any parties, God fearing, you know, was just, well, let, well let, let, let me talk you through his life. So he was born in York in 1813 and he was the oldest of nine children. The family were incredibly religious and his father um, was one of those Victorians who was able to climb their way up the social ladder. So he went from a labourer to a landowner. So he was incredibly respected. He's the sort of person that, you know, when you hear politicians talk about Victorian ideals, you know, as if everyone, if they just work hard, <laughs> you too could become immensely wealthy. And um, so his father was, uh, you know, as I said, became a landowner and his siblings, his other eight siblings, they some of them ran schools, other and ran, others ran temperance hotels, which I think were places where you weren't allowed to drink alcohol. They were essentially the model Victorian family. They were boring. Um, John Snow became a vegetarian quite young and never touched alcohol. And he figured that eating meat wasn't natural. So his friends made fun of him for drinking milk with his breakfast. And he developed an interest in medicine. So he had a wealthy uncle who paid for his apprenticeship. (laughs) Again, isn't it funny how um, these people who work really, really, really hard, it's always just thrown in a wealthy family member donated some money. But anyhow, he um, yeah, that again people. still quite common to this day. Yeah, oh look, I've I've brought ten houses, but I've yeah. I've done it all by myself. But my granddad yeah. sold his tiny little flat in the centre of London, and I've got all the money for it. Hurrah! Look how yeah. well I've done. Yeah, exactly. Irritates yeah, me. Of yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 yeah, but did it all on their own, of course. Exactly, and they did it by not drinking lattes. So, uh, John Snow obviously didn't drink coffee, um, but he, well, he could have drank a latte if he wanted, because he did drink milk, so his friends called him a bit of a hypocrite. But anyhow, his wealthy uncle paid for a medical apprenticeship, so this was one of the many routes that you could take to becoming a doctor. So he learnt on the job. He, he seemed to have had a natural instinct for scientific theory so going along the lines of absence of evidence is not evidence of absence and following the i suppose just the process that we all take for granted that you can't prove anything until you prove it you can't mm-hmm. just fall back on on accepted beliefs or, or anything like that so he found medicine incredibly frustrating because he felt that people were constantly stumbling in the dark and because he was it's such a horrible phrase, but of, you know, low birth, of like a relative low birth. No one in the medical establishment really listened to him. And he was from the north as well. So 
the medical establishment, largely based in London, saw this guy as just just a bit odd, really. Mm. So he worked in he worked in a colliery in Killingworth uh, and uh, during the first epidemic. So it was hit badly by cholera. He treated a huge number of patients. But the death rate in that parish had increased by 50 percent of, of of the 10 year average because of cholera. So, you know, he he was a good doctor, but really there was very little that you could do at the time for cholera. So he took a huge amount of notes on the disease, really, really studied it close hand and was trying to get really any clues whatsoever as to the cause of it. And he, he just kept his notes, really. That, that was it. Once that uh, first epidemic went away um, then he, he he moved on really and he weirdly he seems he walked to London for a job from York in 1846 um, instead of I don't know taking a stagecoach or you know a trip in a canal or something that's a long way I know isn't it it's about three hours in a car just over I would say three and a half hours in a car I only know that because I used to live in Leeds, <laughs> so I used right. to drive up there. Um, so yeah, three and a half hours in a car. So God knows how long that took. Um, yeah. um, there was no motorways, etc. So um, yeah, it would have been the back, yeah. the back roads. Yeah, exactly. So so he walked uh, to Westminster Hospital from York, and he worked there. He passed his Royal College of Surgeons exams in 1838. So we're now six years after the first epidemic. And weirdly, so I always thought before I did some research on him about a year ago, you know, lockdown, start reading books on on Hmm. other people. He didn't focus on cholera throughout his life at all. He found it medically interesting, but he actually was a big uh, researcher on anaesthetic. Okay. You have... um, you have all these amazing stories when anaesthetic was first discovered of the first time ether was used. Uh, I think it was in New York. Uh, the medical community went crazy. This idea that you could prevent uh, pain, and of course, you know, religious communities w- went crazy as well. But they were more along the lines of, "Well, pain is given to us for original sin, so why should you take anaesthetic?" Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But Snow took a rather I guess it, it, it's it's the important work. <laughs> it's not the glitzy scientific work and that he uh, he figured out, right, this is all well and good that ether will knock someone out. But he wanted to focus on what was the concentration of the gas and then how could you measure quantifiably how much gas each person is getting? And then at that, how can you responsibly give just enough ether that you're not going to kill someone or damage their lungs? Because I think when people are knocked out with ether, they would cough and splutter a little bit. Mm. So he would, you know, measure just the right amount to give something. It sounded like he was an early anaesthetist, but, you know, he he worked his way up quite well. And actually, in fairness to him, he gave Queen Victoria ether for the birth of one of her children. Um, Yeah, Queen Victoria was a uh, an early adopter of this pain relief. Um, again, if you check my article out on thehistorycorner.org, you will, you will, you will know this. Um, What's that website again? It is. I'm not saying it again. Chris is going to love all this promotion. Love it. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, so she, yes, yeah, so she was quite an early uh, person who adopted ether, and Snow of course, became like you know uh, a sort of flavor of the month kind of guy because he. Had administered anaesthetics to the queen, 
and people want to gossip of him. And he apparently had really interesting conversations with Prince Albert, but he refused to tell anyone what they talked about. And all he would say was, I'm paraphrasing here, but Her Majesty was the model patient. So even when it came to, you know, telling the Piers Morgan of the day and, you know, the London Illustrated News, mm. give us something about Her Majesty. Nope, nothing at all. So now he was the total opposite of James Simpson, who is the man who discovered chloroform. Now he's a guy who you would want to party with. So he essentially was famous among doctors where he would hold parties where they would test out the latest anesthetics. And <laughs> quite a big one. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. Isn't he? Yeah, so he, he lived up in Edinburgh, I think. And <clears throat> so he was famous. So you wanted to get an invite to a Simpson party. And uh, he would, you know, they'd all take laughing gas and someone would take notes. But really, he was he, he was a party boy. And there's a famous story of when he discovered cholera. Not cholera. <laughs> he didn't discover cholera. He discovered chloroform. Um, They're similar words. 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 It's fine. Very similar words. Yeah. Um his wife walked into the room and him and all of his friends were all passed out and she of course panicked and they eventually come round and he discovered chloroform so he's very much the opposite of john snow in in quite a similar field they've got the same initials as well js and well, yes, js yeah 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 and quite famous surnames yes simpson and yeah. snow yeah yeah um so yeah, there we go. So Simpson is a guy who, you know, if someone twists your arm into having a dinner party of Victorian, you know, Victorian famous doctors, invite Simpson along for your ideal dinner party. But Snow, nah, I think he'd be a bit of a, he was the Victorian Buzz Killington. I think. So I think um, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. So when you were talking about um, this idea for a long time that we had about the Victorian, so, so you've got the Jon Snow character, very sort of withdrawn, very reserved, um, uh, a bit dull. Um, but actually, I think as as time goes on, and this is what I've been learning about the Victorians, like, they were chaotic, absolutely chaotic. And they hid behind this um, facade of, of, of grandeur and nobility and... Um, status and all that kind of stuff when they were experimenting mm. with drugs there was like huge um uh, like arsenic was available they were poisoning people left right and center they were like yeah. throwing people in canals and rivers and um people were jumping in front of trains for the first time people were getting thrown out mm. of trains it was yeah um and i mean if you go into to 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 sex and and that the prostitution was huge um mm. You had, I mean, later on, you had the Cleveland Street scandal. I mean, that wasn't until the Edwardian times, but the Cleveland Street was a uh, a brothel for gay men, which had been operating since um, the Victorian times. So, yeah, this idea that they were all innocent and light is not true. So, mm. yeah, that's my two yeah, pennies they, worth. <laughs> yeah, they fooled us all, haven't they? Because you, you often think of like, of the, I know this was also Edwardian, but the family in, in Peter Pan, is it is it the Darling? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they live in their house and father goes off to work and they're in West London and they work hard. And yeah, yeah, you're totally right. They've, they've absolutely just pulled, pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. And yeah. 
Um, actually, it's funny when there's a brilliant podcast called The Poisoner's Cabinet. Yes, it's great. I have listened to it. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's great. They they research in amazing detail murders, many of them Victorian, using poison, and mm. it's it's wonderful. I mean, poison was in everything. It was in wallpaper. Mm. Um, so uh, when I lived up in Edinburgh, I mean, it sounds like I've lived everywhere. Um, Leeds, yeah. Edinburgh, <laughs> Manchester. Um, when I lived up in Edinburgh, there's a um, an old street there called uh, Mary King's Close. Now, Edinburgh, if you've not been, is very hilly. Um, it's kind of built on top of itself a million times um Mm -hmm. so this old street that used to go down to the old canal which is now where the uh, canal sorry the um lock or i can't say it properly lock lock um Mm -hmm. uh the nor lock where uh the train station now sits so this street used to go down to there Mm -hmm. but they Mm -hmm. they they built a building Mm -hmm. on top of it um using the actual the real street as foundations for this new building but you can go down there and you go down this street that used to be open to the heavens but is now closed off obviously because mm. it's foundations but they um they you open the door and it's still got victorian arsenic wallpaper on the walls it's um it's amazing if anyone gets okay. to go there yeah absolutely incredible you can't go in there for that reason but the the wallpaper, the brightness of the green, that sort of really famous um, sort of floral motif that they have in Victorian times, mm-hmm. slightly velvety. Um, but yeah, it's it's all made of arsenic, which is crazy. That's mad. Yeah. Now, this is what I love about history, because I've been to Edinburgh quite a few times. I used to go and work at the Fringe and perform there a few times. And um, I would have walked past or walked down that street, walked past this building dozens of times. Mm. You would have done because it's on the Royal Mile. It's on the Royal Mile. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you would have seen it. Um, Thing is, when you look at it from the outside, it kind of looks like a Regency building. It doesn't really, it doesn't, Mm. it kind of doesn't fit in with the rest of um, the old Edinburgh sort of style, the old look, the big tenement buildings. Um, It's quite grand. So, Mm -hmm. and then you see it and you're like, oh, it's just going to be another gimmick. But it's actually a real street underneath the city. Wow. Which is incredible. I guess I'll just have to go to Edinburgh again. <laughs> yes, oh, no. when we're allowed. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when did cholera arrive again? Ah, so now it arrived in 1848 by the same route. Now, this epidemic, part of the pandemic, was a lot worse than the first time. So there was 52,000 deaths across the country. And this is where Snow finally gets an opportunity to study the disease. And this is where he creates his his theory that this is a waterborne disease years before the Soho outbreak. So the Soho outbreak was 1854. So he figured this out five years before. Now, by this time the government had created uh you know various different boards of health and a man called edwin chadwick was the head of of the government's response and he it's odd because he's looked upon really favorably in the history of medicine he's the man who cleaned up victorian cities but he yeah he's chalk and cheese so you know he he famously did this report in the 18 hmm, i'm not sure it was either the late 1840s or the 1850s, this famous public health report. Um, you know, he, he you know, travelled around various different 
cities and just said, listen, the poor can't live like this. The government needs to help them out. And Is this where he made the maps? I vaguely remember seeing a map of sort of the London poor and cholera where they've like they've ticked it off in blue, like the streets and that that were affected. I know I'm probably throwing you on the spot there, but I vaguely remember something about that. I think it's... Well, I don't think Chadwick would have. I think Snow did in the next epidemic okay. uh, in the 1850s, and that's his famous Soho uh, discovery. Well, not discovery, but, you know, more evidence mm. to, to back up his theory. But I think that there's also that Charles Booth map, isn't there, from the 1880s, where he divided London up into the different classes of, yeah. of poverty. But it's, like, weirdly, you know, calls, like, a class semi-vicious and whatnot. Um, but anyhow, uh, Edwin Chadwick, he... So he blamed the poor for their own misfortune. You know, he was very much of the belief that if you just work hard, uh, get up early, go to bed late, uh, you will not be poor anymore. And he was a fervent believer of the miasma theory. So this idea that disease is spread by bad smells, which randomly appear. And he, for this epidemic of the 1840s, declared that the best way to fight cholera, this was the official government advice, was to ban people from eating fruit and vegetables and promote opium and meat. So the same guy who's this sort of weird British Victorian is saying, smoke as much opium as you want and eat as much meat as you want, but don't touch fruit and veg. I mean, I'm I'm down with that. No, I'm not. I actually... <laughs> I, I'm not a drug addict, guys. And actually, I don't eat a lot of meat, so I would be rubbish. Um... <laughs> but I've got an image to maintain, so let's just say yes, we'll go for that. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go with this. And, you know, the stories of Covent Garden Market grinding to a halt, the price of meat going through the roof. And then you've got actual doctors, you know, again, reminiscent of today, scolding politicians, saying, well, we're going to have a scurvy outbreak now. You can't tell people not to eat fruit and veg. You know, we've just discovered that scurvy is a lack of vitamin C. And suddenly you're telling people to get high and, and, and eat loads of steak. You know, this this is totally irresponsible. And um, so, the, yeah, that was just bad advice. But, you know, Chadwick did have good advice. You know, he recommended washing down alleys, clean your houses, paint them. Um, foul privies, to use the Victorian language, should be inspected. And um, so really a, stage... a bucket, basically, in a shed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a bucket and a shed. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I suppose it's... If we judge Chadwick, you know, the head of the government's response to, to the second pandemic, um, he was very much a man of his time, you know, and he had that almost that paternal view towards society that, that, that he could help them out, while also believing that government shouldn't get involved in people's lives. But I think he was the first person to start to change that Victorian point of view, Um. So at this stage, doctors were split on the cause and how to treat cholera. And any fluke in curing or any preventing was seen as a success. You know, cannabis, tobacco, magnets, railways. Magnets? You know, any magnets. Yeah, there was, you know, people would write articles saying, oh, if we just had a massive magnet above each city, that will drag away the bad smell. <laughs> or, no, oh, isn't it funny how it seems to be near railway tracks that there's always cholera outbreaks. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you can, yeah, you can sort of see, you know, railways, big cities, uh, you know, comes bad hygiene. Um, and, but I mean, this is, so, Snow was a 
about to get the perfect opportunity to study the disease. But months before, this is, I came across this in my research a couple of days ago, and it's absolutely shocking that there was a place called Mr. Druitt's Pauper's Asylum in London, and what was called child farming, and that orphans would be taken to uh, or sold to these places and then people could could buy them essentially oliver from from oliver twist and there's really really heartbreaking stories and in this children's asylum 180 kids died of cholera uh, in this second outbreak and it just the whole place just it's the worst examples of of you know a government's laissez-faire attitude and of capitalism really this guy mr drew was making you know without any intervention or ethics was making a huge amount of profit in selling children and yeah they lived in the most oh it's just it's heartbreaking to read this you know so yeah i because i'm into the macabre i did actually know about this um and mm. sort of baby and child farming as you like to call it was was quite common um and the way that the victorian dealt with their poor was appalling <laughs> to be honest it, it really is and you know like you know i sort of use that phrase that every historian uses of well you know we must judge people in the context of their time and you know chadwick was a man of his time but this is just horrendous behavior and mm. it's it's just it's bizarre that this asylum was so big that there could be 180 deaths and the mad thing is then he, he was brought to court mr drew for uh being responsible for the deaths of all these children and gasp he was found innocent but the technicality was that no one knew what spread cholera so we can't blame him for these children he obviously deaths. had mates at the top so, didn't he yeah, of course he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think when you hear the phrase, you know, legal technicality, uh, it generally involves a bit of cash, doesn't it? Um, but if, if I can go back now to his to John Snow. So what we had at this stage was generally cholera would thrive in places where there was horrendous poverty, horrendous hygiene. And in 1849, there was an outbreak in Battersea in a street called Albion Terrace. Now, this was a street to be honest the more i read about it it sounds like a street that i live in in canterbury victorian terrace housing you know back gardens a couple of bedrooms in each house uh houses sharing the same water supply but what he was able to do here so there was an outbreak here in the summer of 1849 and there were dozens of deaths and he was able to really really study this case this case became quite famous because it was difficult to go to a slum neighbourhood and interview people, get evidence, because, of course, there was there would be little or no trust in some wealthy doctor or journalist coming in to ask stories about your recently bereaved family or friends or neighbours. Um, but on Albion Terrace, it was lawyers, doctors, bankers. And after this outbreak, which began on the 20th of July and ended on the 13th of August, um, there was a huge amount of evidence to, to study. And it actually, the way this played out, it meant that Snow was able to almost prove, listen, water is the thing that's spreading this disease. But 
there was other pieces of evidence that meant that people who believed in the miasma theory, you know, bad smell spread disease, they could also argue that this was bad smells. So on the 26th of July, 1849, there was a huge storm over London and this made loads of pipes and drains and cesspits overflow. Essentially, loads of pipes burst. And then with the storm followed by disease, then, of course, you've got your religious fanatics who are saying, aha, there we are. God is sending, you know, an act of God, uh, <clears throat> which which heralds disease. And essentially what happened was some houses on the streets within a day or two got really, really bad smells emanating from their from their sinks. Mm. And there was one house which uh, the basement, I believe it was number 13. I don't know why you need that information, but number 13 had 10 cartloads of rubbish in the basement. So, you know, ridden with maggots, terrible, terrible smell emanating from there. And, and there's an outbreak of cholera. So instantly your miasma uh, fans were saying, well, there it is. There's a terrible, terrible, terrible bad smell. And that's what's caused cholera on the street. And then there was a, a, a sewer. So Battersea in London is right next to the Thames. So there was, you know, uh, big sewers that went along the Thames. And then in Battersea Park, there was uh, an open sewer. So, of course, the miasma theorists are saying, right, you've got uh, you've got your sewer cesspit in Battersea Park. You've got your sewer along the Thames and you've got this disgusting smell on the street case closed but snow actually being you know a man of science was able to study the area and there was intensive digs done of of the street and essentially the water supply of the street came from a spring which went uh which you know just kind of outside the house they dug a well had a pump and they all shared the same water supply but not every house got cholera because the what we saw was one half of the street got cholera because their cesspools were essentially just your, your tank where everything went mm. and the pipes of the cesspool were above their water tanks and then what happened was the people in these houses were then drinking the water that had been essentially excreted into one cesspit or one cesspool and then because of the storm the drains, the underground drains in the gardens, leaked into the water supply, but mm. only on one half of the street. So, okay. so it was able to say, well, of course this isn't miasma, because why didn't everyone in the street get cholera? But then, of course, there was people were able to come back and argue with him and say, well, not everyone in each house uh, came down with the disease. And there's there's a, a great story of, of an elderly cook who lived in one of the houses and she never trusted the water. She just didn't like it. She insisted on, on drinking her own water. And if she was going to touch the water on Albion Terrace, she was going to boil it first. And of course, she was absolutely fine. And of course, within this, what is, you know, scientifically really fascinating, you've got these heartbreaking stories of... Uh, uh, human loss you know you've got one man who is uh, his aunts had come to stay and his mother lived in the house and they all passed away within one night his neighbor came in to sit with him and you know uh, sat up through the night with him and you know in the early morning this man 
who was a reverend, just said, I need to leave the house. I'm never going back. Let's get out of here. His neighbour said, absolutely fine. Whatever you need to do, I'm coming with you. They went out onto the streets, hailed a, a hackney cab and went to... Uh, they went to... Oh, what's that? Uh, what's that really posh part of West London called? Belgravia. Oh, it was. No, they went beyond Belgravia to... So they took their hackney cab to Hampstead, which was a nice little village at the time. And as they sat down, this reverend got tummy ache and then instantly said to his neighbour, to his friend who was a lawyer, write my will. And he was dead by the evening time. And this lawyer, you know, had just seen within 24 hours, you know, a a whole family wiped out by cholera. Um, But if we come back to Jon Snow then he was able to use this and to prove that this was the water supply. And if we think back that what people were excreting in their uncontrollable diarrhea was something which was odorless, tasteless and almost see-through. So you could see how you would naturally end up drinking the water if you got your water from a supply of water which was contaminated by drains. <clears throat> then you could see how cholera spread. Yeah. And so... He was. He... Was Sorry, go on. was it was this so this second epidemic was this when Jon Snow kind mm. of had his breakthrough? Yes, but he didn't see it as a breakthrough because again, he was just working along the lines of the scientific process. So this is considerably more significant than the Soho uh, story that's always linked to him. So this is, I guess, this was his breakthrough. So with the Black Death, as yourself and the wonderful Chris Riley covered in another episode, when people got the Black Death, they were bitten by a flea and then this was like a blood-borne infection. So as you guys explained before, your body would, you know, your lymph nodes would swell, you would get buboes, you would get a fever, vomiting would start, and then there was a high chance that that you would die of the disease. Mm. So with cholera, though, your first symptom was diarrhoea. And then it was vomiting. So Jon Snow figured out, because, you know, he was a bit of, he was a man of the scientific process. He figured out that, unlike the Black Death, this was waterborne or something to do with the digestive system. And he'd figured out that he had spent, he'd, he'd spent months in the previous epidemic taking care of cholera victims and never got cholera himself. And so he kind of deduced, well, it's got to be water, isn't it? And then through the Albion terrace outbreak, he was able to conclude this. Now, once he published his findings, uh, no one cared. There was a, a medical journal Aww. called The Lancet, I think. Yeah, really, it was just a case <laughs> of that's ridiculous. It was kind of laughed at briefly and then moved on. So it wasn't even that he was given the publicity of being a laughing stock. It was like, God, isn't that bad? As if. And then... And then people moved on. But as we were chatting about earlier, because this was a time of really rapid change, Louis Pasteur was conducting his experiments now. 
So he hadn't moved on to finding out the cause of disease, but he knew that bacteria were causing problems in silk manufacturing, beer manufacturing. I'm pretty sure he worked for Carlsberg um, in figuring out problems with their you know, distillation process or whatever. And then in Bristol, at the same summer of 1849, some scientists isolated what later turned out to be the cholera bacteria or the cholera pathogen. So there was all these developments happening, but no one was able to, to, to spool it all together, really until the hilariously named Robert Koch figured it all out in the 1880s. Um, That's the best name ever. <laughs> I might change my name. This is the History Emporium of Powell's podcast by... Ollie Koch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I was, he was German, so it should be Koch. But you know, let's 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 pronounce it the way it's written. So, um, so Robert Bobby Koch uh, figured this out a couple of decades later. <laughs> 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 but um, but until then, it was all these small pieces of a jigsaw that couldn't be put together. And then the thing is with John Snow, like he figured out or thought he'd figured out cholera, but it didn't really bother him. He just kind of moved back into the world of anaesthetics and was working on that. And, you know, as a doctor, because he, he had a, quite a strong social conscience. So he wasn't making much money at this time. He was, you know, making probably above average salary, but nowhere near what, you know, a physician to a monarch should earn. You know, he was taking care of poor people for free and he was he was doing what, you know, what a good person would do, I suppose. Mm. Um, so he forgot about cholera quite quickly in a professional sense and just moved on to anesthesia and then it was in, a, in the next couple of years then that the famous Soho case arose. Yeah so after he was ignored for something really important potentially like how bad was like London water by the 1840s? Oh man it was horrendous so gonna shock you here and um, companies were profiting off how awful it was so i mean if we look at the history of london water uh it's essentially it was really clean up until in and around maybe the late tudor period so mm. the romans had laid clay pipes around the city um in the 1300s uh, there were more pipes added using pipes of sandstone lead even some hollowed out elm trees and then in the 15th century, some monks like made fountains and taps in the area of Paddington. But by the time we see the 1600s coming along, oh, actually a big shout out for the first Stuart King. Uh, James I helped pay for the new river, which transported water 38 miles from Hertfordshire, all the way under the centre of London. Well, there we go. Mm, Good old mm. James. Absolutely. Um, in the 1700s, because Britain was really stable and was an island and in natural resources, business, um, entrepreneurship, etc., was able to thrive. So you've got PLCs, which I think stands for public limited companies, building the likes of canals. Um, and you started to get these, or no, was it a public liability company? Either way, you've got people could invest in companies. And of course, um, water became big business. So the Chelsea Water Company was created and it was followed by a couple of other ones, including the companies. And essentially, as they just took water from the Thames and sold it to people, um, they would guarantee you know water three times a week, I think at 12 pennies a month. But when the 1800s came along, like the river and London water was disgusting. In 1816, 
only four salmon were caught in the river and it used to be thousands were caught every year in 1833 the last salmon was caught in the thames for 153 years and we could just start to see that the water was just horrendous in 1827 the waste of 50,000 homes was going straight into the thames and uh of course, this this culminated in the Great Stink, which was it. It's so a couple of years after uh, John Snow came to his great discovery. But I mean, you essentially would have the water would be brown, and of mm. course, the uh, <laughs> and again, going to shock you here, many of the members of Parliament had shares in the water companies. So when the water companies were asked to explain themselves before Parliament, they blamed people's dirty taps. They said that the water they were supplying was absolutely fine. Um, and of course they they got away scot-free but i mean these water companies they were providing water which to the naked eye was horrendous so you you wouldn't go anywhere near it but i guess people didn't really have a choice uh, other than than to drink this water and pay for this water Mm. so um that's i mean that's what we're looking at london wise here and it didn't really change until basiljet came along but i suppose that's that's a little bit further on down the line yeah, so, I mean, I just want to chip in there about London. I've spoken about this briefly before, but Lond- like the Thames is not the only river in London. So um, the Fleet River was a was a big river, um, which is still there, but it's underground now. So it's underneath Fleet Street. Mm. It's covered by Fleet Street. And that was right. um, basically one big sewer. Um, everyone's uh, waste went into that. It eventually joined the Thames. Um, there were lots of butchers and um, uh, like slaughterhouses and that down that way. So everyone was just throwing their muck into the London rivers. So I mean, no wonder something like this sprung up. It was a it was a breeding ground um, for all of that kind of stuff. And I mean, they're 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 well, the British famously. Um, especially after the Tudor times, um, it was safer to drink beer than it was to drink water. Mm. Mm. God, that's such a good point. I always forget that because don't you see the the Hogarth paintings of gin lane, etc. And essentially everyone drank, you're right, gin, beer, kind of anything which had alcohol in it and, and the water had been boiled. Yeah, yeah so it could kill, right, yeah. kill, the, yeah. kill the germs, although they didn't really know what the germs were. At this point, mm. but it obviously mm. had a very mer- a merry a merry UK. I guess everyone was just drunk all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. At this point, are we at the famous Soho water pump yet? Yes, we have finally arrived. So, 1854, there is another pandemic, um, and within the context of the international pandemic, then we've got the epidemics uh, across Britain and I mean essentially like John Snow knew as, as we've discussed uh, just, just now about Albion Terrace so he knew that this is a waterborne disease he just needed another way to prove it and essentially in Soho uh, I mean it was the conditions in Soho were absolutely awful you had in and around Broad Street where this famous pump was uh, you would have sometimes 16 people sharing a room. It was, you know, the sort of the worst of, of human poverty. And this one pump on, on Broad Street, the well for it was right next to a huge cesspit. And 
after excavations a couple of years later from a local priest, uh, Reverend Whitehead, they discovered that a baby's nappy, uh, unfortunately, uh, a baby who was a couple of months old, I can only remember her first name, it was Frances. She, her you know, parents put her, her nappies into the cesspit and then the cesspit leaked into the water supply. And essentially anyone who got water from this pump was a threat of dying of cholera and again because of the rice water even if or the what was called the sort of rice water the cloudy liquid excrement even if your water was dirty with cholera you wouldn't know so there was a huge outbreak and he was able to get a map of the area put grids on it place on the map where the deaths were and he looked he figured it out that everyone who was dying was getting their water from this water pump and uh I think there was a brewery next to the water pump where people didn't drink the water. They all drank beer. So then essentially he narrowed it down. He famously got permission from the council, took the handle off the pump, and then the deaths stopped. But as fate would have it, the deaths were going down anyway. So they were at the other end of a big peak. So people were able to say, well, well, that doesn't matter. And I mean, unfortunately then, John Snow died four years later of a stroke and this this was kind of it really he died without anyone ever acknowledging that he'd created the uh he'd created the not not the cure but how to prevent cholera and before he died he wrote uh just a really basic pamphlet saying listen if everyone washes their hands and boils water before they drink it we can stop these huge epidemics not wipe out cholera of course because he you know i don't think he was naive enough to give everyone clean water because it was the middle of the 1800s he didn't expect the government to but again yeah washing your hands boiling water and it was just totally ignored really and 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 that was kind of it it was only really with the the great stink of 1858 when the thames just became so uh smelly i guess that Parliament decided to act and to, you know, employ Joseph Bazalgette to build sewers to take, uh, you know, the waste of London out, out to sea, really. And am um, I right in thinking that it only got publicity and actually something was done about it when it actually sort of reached the Houses of Parliament and it was affecting them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean... The river had got considerably worse and a big factor was actually the toilet because after the hilariously named Thomas Crap created a way that you could have, you know, you could sort of mass produce toilets, then more waste went into the Thames. But, but I mean, you're right. As soon as Parliament had to leave the city, um, and I think they might have gone to Oxford. The same as yeah, so that's, yeah, so I think they only left London or Westminster twice in the whole sort of modern mm. period of history and i think that was one and the other was um uh the one that we spoke about on the previous episode so mm. yeah interesting yeah and it's yeah it's i suppose that that's that is the key way of looking at it as soon as politicians were affected that's when they acted of course mm. you know someone you know an idealist could equally say well they were going to have to act eventually but yeah, I mean, it's really sad because mm. once, I mean, they spent a huge amount of money uh, to, you know, build the, the sewers. They actually built the Thames Embankment. They built the district line, weirdly. And um, that sort of section 
of underground railways next to the Parliament. Um, and of course, there was no cholera outbreaks where these sewers were put in. But, and again, I know I'm being London-centric, um, so hopefully I'll have to forgive me for that. But the next outbreak was then in 1866, and it was in the east end of the city. Mm. So all of the sewers started in the west because they followed the gravitational flow of the river. So there was a cholera outbreak in 1866 again. Snow had died eight years before. And rather interestingly, actually, the future Prime Minister, Gladstone, his wife organised a whip around to uh, help uh, cholera orphans. And Queen Victoria and Prince Albert donated £500 and £200, uh, respectively. And really, really criticised for how stingy, pretty much, they were being. Yeah, something that's just occurred to me... Um... There's there's a pub next to that pump in Soho called mm-hmm. John mm-hmm. Snow and now it all yeah. makes sense because I've been mm-hmm. to Soho many many times it's not that far from from where I live I can be there in half an hour obviously not at the moment because there's a mm-hmm. pandemic but um I've drunk in that pub many a times and I've always wondered why oh, it's yeah. called the the John Snow so yeah. now I know now I know why it's yeah, located next to the pump that's that's really interesting and that do you yeah. know what that's again i'm being london centric but i i mean this is kind of where i'm i'm from and i've spent a lot of my time so i know it mm. quite well um i mean that's what i love about these these place names and, and you'll get little um alleyways and stuff and they're named really obscure things but there's always a reason behind mm. it so i'm yeah. you'll often see me in in london this is going to sound dodgy. Down a down a dark alley, taking photos of um, signs and stuff, and and googling stuff, and and oh, this happened here, and that happened mm. there. Um, but mm. yeah, so the John Snow, so that that totally makes sense now. So, um, yeah, you have enlightened it's, me. It's odd. I mean, it's oh, I, I'm very pleased, and it because he was mad into temperance. It's quite odd that. Like a pub is named after him because he wouldn't be seen dead in there. But but there we go. Do you think that um, he was sort of not as credible as his um, peers because a he was of lower class um, when he was born and he was northern? Do you think that has something to do with it? I think it does. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as we know, like so much of uh, sort of power in a country is based around those sort of inner workings of a parliament or or of business connections and he just had no interest in that Mm. so I think there is the fact that he wasn't born into money although he did have the wealthy uncle he was northern and I think those two those two factors must have must have contributed and again he just wasn't willing to play the game really I think he I don't think he saw himself as a saviour of color or you know of, of london's water or anything i think he just was fascinated by science yeah and just wanted to be a good doctor yeah um, so so when the great moment of sort of revelation came that this is how it was caused etc was he seen as right well i mean in a word no no. <laughs> Essentially, just bit by bit, but I know there was no moment where he was seen as this saviour because just bit by bit the evidence stacked up and stacked up until eventually, and you know, if we go hand in hand with 
uh, other medical developments that were happening in the 1870s and 1880s with our old friend old Bobby Cock. The, um, I think people started to realise that actually, you know, bacteria spread disease, um, although not Florence Nightingale, interestingly. She died just before the First World War and went through her whole life claiming that uh, germ theory was a hoax and all, uh, all this kind of stuff. But I, here's my theory on Jon Snow. I think that the only reason we know about him is because it gives history teachers a little story to tell in a lesson. I, I really think that's why it is, because at no point does he stand out. And then I think once, like this GCSE history course, the medicine through time, uh, which is really, really popular uh, across Britain. I was going to say, they're still doing that. They were doing that when I was... yeah. A teenager. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was actually really gutted. I'll um so we were meant to do uh local history and this is like pre um Bletchley Park kind of opening its doors again and we were like one of the first school trips to ever go to Bletchley Park and we went we went there and and, wow. and and um it was in in ruins completely and um and then they changed the syllabus so we'd done all this trip and we'd got back and then they were like nope we're doing medicine i was so annoyed <laughs> i was well up for like code breaking chat and stuff yeah it wasn't yeah, the um yeah, yeah. the world renowned um museum and 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 complex that it is now it was a crumbling wreck that hadn't been touched since 1945 which in a way is more interesting oh. to me um, yeah, yeah. I remember getting told off for smoking around the bike sheds. So that was very naughty of me. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. Um, sorry, I completely threw you off your track there. So, <laughs> Jon Snow. Um, why? Why should we remember him? Why is he important? Um, I think it's because he he's the sort of. He's the man who could, who was able to step away from centuries of almost like mental conditioning that it was bad smells that created disease. And he was able to see the wood for the trees, really. You know, he, I think he applied the scientific process in, in the right way. And essentially, I mean, just to go off on a tangent, I was doing a parents' evening a couple of weeks ago online, obviously, and I was chatting to someone who's like quite high up in the army i work at a prep school <laughs> so um yeah so you get um you get to meet these uh very interesting people but this man was quite high up in the army and he said that they had a talk last june about you know how to stop covid and you know what role the army can play and all this kind of stuff and john snow featured in the talk and he said oh you know i've overheard in the lessons you teach my son or whatever and it was really interesting that he said that Snow was being an example of how only to use evidence when you're faced with something you don't understand. And, you know, when I think it would have been last June, you know, where there would have been talks of this being a hoax or, you know, anti-vaxxers, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, these sort of guys who were high up in the military were told, listen, you need to follow the work of this man who in a previous pandemic didn't listen to all the noise around him, uh, didn't buy into what the crowd was thinking just followed evidence 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 and i think that's why we should remember him yeah i mean let's be honest we're not going to remember him for his personality really um <laughs> or that he gave ether to the queen even though we we do remember that um yeah i think so and it's kind of cool that he's got a water pump in soho i got so excited when i saw it a couple of years ago when i was up there um 
but I regret not going into the Jon Snow for a pint. You should absolutely, okay. when you're allowed, yeah, when you're allowed, you should, um, I'll tell you what, we could, we could meet in Soho and we can toast Jon Snow. That's what we can do as a, as a legacy I to the it. man. So we'll, we'll do that. We'll make okay. that a plan. Um, bring the, bring the twins. I'm sure they'd love a, love a pint as well. Um, absolutely. That has absolutely. been so interesting because I knew very little about well, I didn't even know his name to be honest. I knew that there was a gentleman that took a handle off a of a pump in Soho, but that was it. So that is, mm. uh, but there's what you what you've taught me is there was so much before that event, and there was so much work behind the scenes going on um, in this ever changing landscape of Victorian Britain. And actually, I think it's a massive disservice that we don't. We don't talk about this chap more. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, maybe this podcast will help. Maybe this will drive some sort of John Snow renaissance. Maybe. We should start the John John Snow <laughs> fan club. Although I'm sure there is a John Snow fan club, but not this one, the Game of Thrones yeah. one. Um Yeah, if you yeah, look at the course, f- yeah. photo of John Snow, um the John Snow that we're talking about, he does look very um Plain is probably not the right word, but if you if you were to look at a Victorian, you mm. would imagine Mr. Snow. Um, yeah. Did I mean I'm putting you on the spot here? But did he have any children? Was he married or anything? That's a really good question. It wasn't mentioned in the reading and research that I'd done, which was a wonderful book. It was largely a wonderful book by Sandra Hempel called A Medical Detective. Um that's a really good point. I don't think I don't think he did. Well maybe something something for our listeners to do perhaps. Mm. Yeah, let me know. So. I've got um <laughs> I've got a theory just because he was in Soho, maybe he was a massive gay and that's why he was hanging around Soho. <laughs> um now before I get any hate speech I am I am one of them. So oh something really ha- funny happened to me on Facebook the other day. I um I was sort of joking around with one of my pals and um I called him and I gay boys and I got banned from Facebook for 48 hours. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm hate hate speech on myself. I know, very bizarre. <laughs> hate speech. The I don't know. I was just was yeah i was banned for for 48 hours so um yeah that is the life i lead listeners that is the life that i lead um (laughs) oh paddy it's been so interesting honestly i was really nervous at the start and now i'm in fraud and i feel like we should definitely do more topics and subjects on lesser known people um and i know you probably get typecast and 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 pushed into this i know you've done a podcast with dan on um let me introduce myself about growing up Mm. sort of in the troubles um Mm. but i definitely want to explore that with you (laughs) um at some point if possible um but we can chat about that that. yeah we can chat about that off off air people don't need to hear our nonsense um but yeah i mean if there's i mean you've done some uh stories not stories you've done some articles for the 
historycorner.org. So you've, you said you've got another one coming up. I do, on the Spanish flu, um, the last great pandemic. Yeah, so I'm just, uh, I've done my research and I'm at the writing stage now. So there's a, there's a theme here. Socials, as I say. There's a theme, there's a pandemic theme. Yeah, do you know, I've never even considered it, and yet it's so obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I'm just focusing on uh, mass waves of death, but, you know, that's, that's the word we're in at the moment, isn't it? Good times, good times. Well, we, it's relatable, if nothing else. It's relatable. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Um, oh, okay, so I'm going to end it there, but thank you so much for coming on, and um, we'll chat again it's soon. Absolutely blast. yeah. Thank All you right. very much. Cheers, Paddy. Cheers.